Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. We estimate there are trillions of planets in this galaxy alone. On those worlds and their moons, across countless galaxies, a near-infinite number of environments might exist. What strange lands might we see under alien suns? Welcome back to another Sci-Fi Sunday here on SFIA, where we take a concept from science fiction and look at it through the lens of science to see if it works or how it would work, and today we will be looking at the concept of alien environments, a topic that is probably too big for a single episode, but that's a good starting place and maybe we'll expand on it in future episodes. This episode itself got its origin in our Alien Refugees episode from back in the summer, where we looked at the idea of aliens coming to us for aid and for new homes, and I realized that I didn't spend much time talking about how we would simulate their living conditions. I ended up doing a Nebula Extended Edition of that episode, exploring the idea for another 10 minutes or so, but even as I started working on that, I knew we needed a whole episode for it, or maybe even a series. Of course that's true for every topic we do. My usual joke when folks ask me if I'm ever worried about running out of topics for episodes is that the cool thing about science and the future is that there are so many topics to explore that I wouldn't even be able to come close to covering them all, and we have whole libraries devoted to just one period of time on our planet, itself a small pale blue dot in the vast cosmos. I and a thousand of my clones could walk 10,000 years and we would barely scratch the surface of these topics. It is hard enough to get a weekly episode done with just myself and my seven current clones after all. Nonetheless, we're going to try to make a good start today, and I thought we would generally classify various traits that wars might have, then how we could replicate them ourselves. We will skip alternate dimensions and virtual worlds, for today at least, and limit ourselves to places which might exist in our universe with its known laws, otherwise any environment we might imagine, even a twisted fever dream or hallucination, would be on the table. As we'll see, the available options are already surreal enough. Speaking of that, it's also worth noting that while we might find plants entirely covered in forests of mushrooms, the human body often reacts to toxic and alien substances with hallucination, and might react the same way to exotic physical conditions, not just to native biology, so first-hand accounts of strange new worlds might be rather dubious, especially if they'd eaten something there. As the joke goes, when randomly sampling unknown plants, it is even odds it will nourish you, kill you, or make you see God for a week. So an explorer coming back from a distant world reporting crazy surreal conditions and conversations with strange talking fish or rocks might be on the level, or might have been knocked askew by the weird train or ecology, or both. A key notion though is that while you might find yourself on a planet with quicksilver seas or five moons or three suns, even on some war that looks like a clone of Earth from orbit, there's a lot of room for strange stuff. After all, Earth itself is ancient and immense, and has no shortage of environments that seem bizarre and alien to newcomers, and include lots of things which are dangerous and toxic to us too. And that's only speaking about naturally occurring worlds. As I've said, we'll leave out all the virtual worlds and alternate dimensions for now, but odds are good that most places that alien civilizations will live, 
once they've become spacefaring, are worlds they've forged themselves, their own space habitats, or carefully terraformed and tailored planets, those could be very strange, and in truth they are also likely to be laden with virtual realms and augmented realities. Some alien's house might be a mix of classic but alien architecture, arcology-style natural themes, with holodecks and modular moving room elements, and the same could easily be true for someone coming back to visit Earth or any of its colonies in a few thousand years. And again, disorienting, like someone transported out of the past and into some neon-lighted covered road through a market district in a place where the sun sets early behind a forest of steel and glass, all to the thunder of engines and a thousand voices chatting or hawking bizarre products and foods. An alien painting might look like something Jackson Pollock threw together while actually having layers of augmented reality built into it, as well as paints that reacted to frequencies of light we couldn't see. There is artwork and music which can inspire vertigo or disorientation, and it's possible mundane work would do that to an alien, or to us when looking at theirs, so they might have the same response to ours, or reactions like seizures to lighting or noise as some humans can get, even if they originate on a world so like ours that we might have a problem telling a difference. Walking into a heavy metal concert taking place on Earth isn't alien, but it can be stunning. Such being the case, even a lost colony of humanity that traveled so far out to find their world that by the time their main colonization waves reached them, they had a hundred thousand years of divergence and memory loss. That might be a very alien place and they might find modern or future Earth crazier than any world we've seen in sci-fi. And that's a key notion for today because a common objection to very surreal alien landscapes is that they wouldn't be likely to naturally occur or spawn life. So it's important to remember that the color of our sea and sky and rock, and their particular makeup, are only some parts of what make bits of our world interesting or strange to us. It is also true that a quicksilver sea is not likely to naturally occur, that's a rare element and unlikely to exist in such a quantity any place that wouldn't have vastly greater amounts of other lighter elements in place as seas and sky above. But we must remember that the nature of a creature who can create technology is likely to be much like our own, clever, curious, and creative. Douglas Adams jokes of advanced aliens making plants entirely of gold in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but there's 20 times as much mercury as gold in the universe, and 85 grams out of every billion in our universe is this. Our ocean masses just under a billionth what our sun does, and so there's enough quicksilver or mercury in a star like ours, or an equal amount of random matter in the universe, to cover a hundred planets in oceans of quicksilver, where a lead brick would float on the waves as easily as a piece of wood would in our oceans. And since rock would float, so would a mountain, making for some very interesting, if a little unstable, floating landscapes. One common notion we tend to have about galactic colonization is that, as a star system or region of space gets colonized, they will tend to want to harvest all their materials, particularly the abundant ones in their star that shorten stellar lifetime, which they would do via star lifting. Billions of years tends to erode away asteroid stockpiles of rocky matter, and gases and volatiles will dissipate even more quickly, so they probably want to harvest them, then store them where they are easy to access and not prone to leaking on geological timelines. Planets are pretty decent for that and it isn't hard to imagine interstellar empires deciding to get a bit creative with their stockpiles. Gold was popular because it was pretty, easy to walk, and did not corrode, 
so a lot of people literally wore their wealth in an era where locks wore rarity, so precious metals as wealth, stored as jewelry, might see a future equivalent. Why leave your gold ingots sitting in a vault no one can reach when you can melt it into a cool statue that people will pay money to come visit? Tourism is around 10% of the global economy, and even at the height of Covid it remained above 5%. A high-tech post-scarcity civilization can probably do better, and a rock of resources designed to wait till you need it, that turned into a tourist resort, is at least generating some revenue in the meantime, seems like a pretty good deal, so long as you have the means to defend it. But then you have to protect and secure your treasure vaults or unharvested resources too, so folks don't steal them, at least this way you're getting some admissions money from the thieves when they come to case the place out. Same for space habitats. I don't doubt that a cylinder habitat mimicking a nice chunk of Earth-like garden park and tame forest is going to be a popular build, but figure on 1% of space habitats in a Karlshev II civilization being built with the intent of being abnormal, and at least 1% of those aiming for very alien or surreal. And 1 in 10,000 might not be much, but a K2 civilization would be expected to have something like a quadrillion county-sized space habs, each a micro-Earth, for a billion Earths worth of living space, and that 1% of 1% of halves being crazy and surreal in design would mean there were perhaps 100 billion of them, containing 100,000 planets worth of weird stuff, and we have every reason to think aliens would be prone to the same thing. So you come to an alien environment and there's no one answering the phone, and it turns out it's their equivalent to Jurassic Park, contained inside an O'Neill cylinder, and you find dinosaurs inside, not smart aliens. Or maybe both and they sell you dino burgers and t-shirts to help support the preserve. Or you land on the world they made of precious metals and a lake or sea of mercury, then create a totally artificial ecology designed around those elements from the ground up and intentionally made dangerous predators to keep thieves away. A depleted uranium-skinned shark that swum in seas of mercury. You could get some weird stuff too, like a planet with mountains made of rubies and sapphires, those are mostly just aluminum and oxygen, and we can lab-forge those these days very cheaply. An advanced civilization really shouldn't have much problem making a landscape out of gems and weird critters with diamond exoskeletons. Those are the artificial cases, but keep in mind we might find natural life on worlds that are pretty weird too. Oceans of quicksilver might be ultra-rare, but oceans of liquid hydrogen or helium won't be, Neither will diamond, which is merely carbon, and which we think is hyperabundant in some gas giants, where you might have regions of their atmosphere where it literally rained diamonds. You need a very sturdy umbrella to go out singing in the rain there. Let's take an example. For all that Mars is usually the most popular terraforming candidate, Venus is probably easier to make Earth-like. At 82% of Earth's mass, it has a surface gravity of 90% of Earth's, and the three big notes on it are that it gets too much sunlight, it spins backward very slowly, with the daytime lasting months, and that it has a horrendously thick atmosphere, which all help make it a super hot suburb of hell, not a place with great real estate values or tourist attractions. It's not terribly plausible life, particularly complex life, is anywhere on Venus, at best we might have microbes in the sky, We could engineer life that could live there though, and such types of planets shouldn't be terribly rare in the cosmos. 
So I suspect that even if we changed Venus to better accommodate Earth-based life, that we would eventually have some Venusian worlds we decided to try to craft life for, bioforming as opposed to terraforming, which might go far beyond genetic tweaking to rebuilding the very concept of life from entirely different key chemistries and elements. Aliens might do the same, and of course post-biological life can adapt itself to live wherever it pleases, maybe even on top of neutron stars. As we discussed in Winter on Venus though, deployment of cheap solar shades to orbit Venus could block its light and cool it, and we could later introduce some solar mirrors to stabilize the temperature where we wanted it and give it a more Earth-like environment. The thing is, most of Venus's atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and that's a substance most folks know of as a gas released by breathing creatures or by burning organic materials or fossil fuels, and that is also what dry ice is made of, and when you heat dry ice up, it doesn't melt into water but turns from a solid directly into a gas, what we call sublimation as opposed to melting a solid into a liquid or boiling a liquid into a gas, or condensing a gas into a liquid or freezing a liquid into a solid. Dry ice goes directly from solid to gas with no liquid phase. Well, not on Venus, the pressure is too high. Fundamentally, liquid states of matter are only able to exist under pressure, Solids hold themselves together by static bonds, and gases are just loose molecules floating around, but a liquid is kept together by being shoved on by outside materials, or pressure, while being held together by intermolecular bonds, and shoved about by their own heat energy, which tries to break them apart. And thus liquids basically do not exist in a vacuum environment, there's usually a range of temperatures a liquid can exist at, 0 to 100 Celsius for water for instance, and generally speaking that range expands as the pressure rises. Water for instance can be kept liquid at much higher temperatures by raising pressure and will also need to be cooler to freeze. However, as pressure drops, that range decreases and there's usually a pressure at which a given material won't be a liquid anymore, typically right below the material's triple point, the temperature and pressure combination where it can be a solid, liquid, and gas all at once. Boiling temperature and freezing temperature are double points, as ice cubes in a glass of water or a pan of boiling water are examples of. For water, that triple point is just over normal freezing temperature, at about a hundredth of a degree Celsius and 0.006 atmospheres, or a bit over half a percent of normal Earth pressure. No liquid water on any planet whose atmosphere is below this, 0.6% of sea level pressure. Of course water would be evaporating easier as that pressure dropped to replenish it and achieve an equilibrium. Blow Earth's atmosphere off and some of our ocean will boil up and replace it, and you'd end up with an oxygen-only atmosphere as the hydrogen slowly leaked into space, though there's enough nitrogen in the dirt to replenish much of that in the atmosphere too. Keep doing that though and the oceans will leak away. That concludes our chemistry and meteorology lecture for today. As always, don't worry, no pop quiz is coming. But the key point is, every substance has a pressure at which no liquid can exist, though some are so low that even trace atmospheres on larger moons would work, like Mercury, the substance not the planet, while other materials like carbon dioxide need several times normal Earth air pressure to be a liquid. Venus has a surface pressure about 95 times higher than Earth and thus can have liquid carbon dioxide, but the temperature is too hot for it not to boil. Venus may have had oceans of carbon dioxide in the past, 
If we assume it used to be colder and have lower atmospheric pressure in the past and underwent some period of rising temperature and pressure till it reached its current state, this might have helped shape its current surface and indeed as it became supercritical carbon dioxide, having gas and fluid properties simultaneously may have caused the rift valleys and river-like beds we see there, though there is also a theory that Venus is completely resurfaced with lava every few million years. Either way, as we begin cooling Venus down, its temperature will reach a point where liquid carbon dioxide can exist at that point, in those conditions, and it will begin to rain down on the surface and puddle up to form lakes. The atmospheric pressures will begin dropping too, as carbon dioxide is leaving air to become sea, and thus it's quite plausible you could have worlds that were naturally stable at seven times normal Earth air pressure between the temperatures of negative 56 to 31 Celsius, or negative 69 to plus 88 Fahrenheit. And liquid water still exists here just fine too, though as it is slightly less dense than liquid carbon dioxide in some temperature regimes, you would have a layer of water above carbon dioxide. Indeed, we get something like this in some deep mountain lakes here on Earth, though the CO2 gets turned into carbonic acid, which when saturated causes bursts of CO2 to spill over the lake and down the mountain, which has devastated some places and killed many people, and it's likely this is common throughout the cosmos. If you're curious, dry ice is denser than water, liquid CO2, and water ice, so a volcanically active planet that was about room temperature could have a high pressure and strange mixes of CO2 into water and soil and sky. Though it should be noted that we would generally expect much slower changes in temperature and a lower variation in temperature on the surface of planets or moons with higher air pressure. Thicker air absorbs and loses temperature slower, and of course some materials retain heat better than others, Needless to say, this sort of effect is hardly limited to carbon dioxide and includes many substances that are a lot more common than mercury, and some are pretty dense in liquid form. Carbon dioxide comes in at 1.1 grams per cubic centimeter, or a specific gravity of 1.1, while water is 1 and water ice is 0.9, which is why ice floats on water and would float even better on liquid carbon dioxide. A lot of rock is between 2 and 3, there are some rocks below this and liquids that go above this, but not many of either. However, we have a lot of liquids that are lower density than water and in which ice would sink, permitting some alien environments where you had a solid layer between two liquid layers or submerged islands floating in a band between those layers. Throw in biology and things can shift, as many of those liquids are biology related and might be produced by an organism or consumed by them, and a given floating island might be an environment evolved to carefully adjust its buoyancy, much as many organisms do. Imagine a coral reef environment that clung to an iceberg that snapped off some ice sheet on a planet that had a thin layer of oil, maybe just a few tens of meters that sunlight could still penetrate, floating above an ocean of water, and some organism clung to that and produced gas bubbles at some rate adapted to adjust with ratios of water to oil or pressure and depth. Now, oil photooxidizes on Earth and oil spills in the ocean, tar is an example of photooxidized oil, but there are other substances besides oil that are lighter than water and you can't oxidize with abundant oxygen, and you also have substances that are plastic or resin and see-through, Worlds with lower free oxygen or with less sunlight or just with little UV might allow some very long dwell times of things like oil or alcohol. 
I don't think you'd find a planet with seas of vodka, but we have to remember that any substance that gets produced by a geological or biological process faster than it dissipates, or changes into something else, is going to accumulate. That's what we think happened with oxygen in our own atmosphere back when it was a toxic waste product to the life here. We've other scenarios for strange environments too. Earth is thought to have previously had natural fission reactors when the planet was younger and natural uranium was more plentiful and some of its more radioactive isotopes more abundant too. We could not only imagine life evolving around such places, but potentially having an ecosystem designed around importing more uranium to the spot to keep it going. Those might produce huge fountains of gas and steam off them that caused waterfalls from great heights on some mountain they were inside. Continental plates can potentially be very badly mangled, so you got something like the Rock of Gibraltar scaled up, or a natural Panama Canal but with a much larger flow rate and change of height for a mega waterfall. It is likely that before Earth had its enormous moon, our world spun around about twice as fast as now, having a day closer to that of Jupiter or Saturn, and most asteroids spin far faster, usually several times a day. On such worlds, not only is the day shorter but the weather and erosion effects are far more severe. Imagine a world racked by almost constant thunderstorms. Such worlds might be low on light and have found a way for biology to harvest wind or even lightning strikes for life-giving energy without sunlight. Alternatively, we believe lightning was less common on early Earth, for all its faster spin, because of the different atmosphere young Earth had. Electrons do not act the same in an atmosphere of carbon dioxide and nitrogen, like Venus has and early Earth may have had, compared to methane, ammonia, water vapor, and neon, another likely option for early Earth atmosphere, and indeed we might have had multiple ones. And yes, we probably had a lot of neon, that element is fifth in abundance in the universe after hydrogen, helium, oxygen, and carbon respectively. Neon is a noble gas and thus chemically inert, which also makes it odorless. It also has the smallest temperature range it can exist as a liquid, just 2.6 Celsius, but it has an interesting property when exposed to electric current that we take advantage of for neon lighting. Different atmosphere mixes can result in very different coloring and lighting there too. The sun might rise in the west and into a green sky, and there might be strange colored clouds which might be made of acid not water. You might have multiple sunrises too, in binary systems, and many moons. A planet that's got more nitrogen and carbon dioxide in its atmosphere has more of a problem getting lightning strikes, and while I speculated a moment ago about life running off lightning, in one regard it already does here. We believe lightning discharges were responsible for making those prebiotic molecules like amino acids that needed to be so plentiful to give life a good chance of arising. That is a good example of an unexpected but possible major Fermi Paradox filter, a planet whose atmosphere isn't allowing those prebiotic molecules to form and remain and accumulate enough to allow a realistic chance of life starting is far more likely than one like ours to remain dead, even when all of the conditions for life are great. When thinking of wondrous and natural alien environments, we do need to keep such things in mind. Very tiny changes to conditions might drastically diminish or even entirely eliminate any plausibility of life arising or sustaining itself, and while all we know for sure from the Fermi Paradox is that the universe as we see it does not appear to be full of tons of talkative, loud, extraterrestrial alien civilizations, 
One of the more popular reasons offered why that might be the case is that life in general is very rare, versus life being common but intelligence and technology being rare or short-lived. If life in general is rare then it would tend to imply it takes very little to make a world uninhabitable. My own guess, and it's only that, is that intelligence is rare, and complex life is not super common, but I wouldn't be surprised if the odds turned out to be that life rarely evolved more than once per galaxy, or that it typically arose on every hunk of ice and rock in a given solar system, that was big enough to allow some local gravity or for it not to be evaporated away by sunlight very quickly. That's a difference factor of over a trillion so I could be accused of spreading my arms very wide for my argument. I really wouldn't be surprised if we found some simple life in several places in this solar system, or if the new generation of telescopes start picking up atmospheric biosignatures on exoplanets, and if we do then we really need to contemplate that life can arise in all sorts of weird places, and once it has arisen it tends to be good at finding ways to stick around. We've got some extremophiles on this planet that might be able to thrive on other worlds in this system, and we could also argue modern life is an extremophile survival of that more ancient world where oxygen was a deadly poison. So often we think of Earth as the logical baseline world to look at, and with good cause, but the conditions on Earth now are not what they were when life arose here, and we still do not know how or where it arose here, or even if it did, as opposed to germinating in some comet or icy planetary rings like Saturn and falling here to grow and diversify or maybe even grown in alien labs to be seeded around the galaxy as an experiment at galactic gardening. I am curious what other alien environments you think might be around the galaxy for us to explore, so let us know in the comments section of the episode, and we will also be having a poll for future alien environment episodes on five more specific cases, multi-star planets, terrestrial moons around gas giants, lava tube ecologies on Sithonian planets, crystal forests, or double planets, and you can head over to our community tab and help me decide what environment to force look at in detail. There are a lot of writers who do truly alien worlds and cultures amazingly well. Some favorites are Peter Hamilton, Alastair Reynolds, Frank Herbert, Ursula Le Guin, Stephen Baxter, Stanislaw Lem, C. H. Sherry, C. S. Friedman, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert L. Ford, and Larry Niven. But when it comes to the truly fantastic, nothing beats the surreal and often psychedelic 1960s and 70s new wave era of sci-fi, and nobody wrote it better than Roger Zelazny, the author of so many reality-tristing works that explore the alien world and our own often alien psyches. Zelazny wrote dozens of books that explore surreal worlds, superhuman and transhuman motifs, and the existential crises such people would experience, and it is never better than his legendary ten-book classic The Chronicles of Amber, journeying through countless impossible and maddening worlds all the way to the courts of chaos, so I'm glad to give the Audible Audiobook of the Month to that amazing series, and you can find all ten novels performed by the author himself over on Audible. I personally love the books narrated by the author, though after he passed away we had newer versions narrated by Alessandro Giuliani from Battlestar Galactica and Will Wheaton from Star Trek that are excellently performed, and I was very glad to see many of his older works like Creatures of Light and Darkness finally get audiobooks, and you can find all of those, along with audiobooks by so many other sci-fi and fantasy greats, over on Audible.
Indeed, Audible has so many audiobooks available that you could hit the play button and literally listen for centuries before anything repeated, and more being added every day faster than you could listen to all of it. But they don't just have audiobooks, they also have many excellent podcasts, such as Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, where we have every single episode on YouTube plus several audio-only exclusives I've made over the years. That's just some of the great content in the Audible Plus catalog, which also has sleep and meditation tracks available, as well as guided fitness programs and Audible originals like Roadkill, the newest work by my friend Dennis E. Taylor, who many of you know from his awesome Bobivorce novels, which are also available on Audible, along with Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber. The whole Audible Plus catalog full of free books and other content comes as a bonus when you join Audible, in addition to your usual one free audiobook each month and big member discounts on additional ones, and as always, new members can try Audible for free for the first month, just go to audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500. We were discussing alien environments today and the possibility of being stranded on such a world came up, so next month's Sci-Fi Sunday will focus on that option and what if you got stranded on an alien planet. Before that, while traveling to alien environments may be an option in the future, a lot will depend on how easy space travel turns out to be, and this Thursday we'll contemplate space travel if it might become so mundane you could have your own personal spaceship, which we'll look at on October 20th. Then we'll ask what would happen if you damaged that spaceship on October 27th and then close out the month on Halloween weekend with our livestream Q&A on Sunday, October 30th at 4pm Eastern Time. Join us live to get your questions into the chat so they can be answered. After that we'll head into November to discuss refueling the sun, an option that could make it possible for us to keep Earth going for trillions of years to come. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help support future episodes, please visit our website IsaacArthur.net for ways to donate, or become a show patron over at Patreon. Those and other options like our awesome social media forums for discussing futuristic concepts can be found in the links in the description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!